We all have questions about the Bible. At Milwaukee Chi Alpha, we want to take the questions we have about the Old Testament and use them to get us closer to Jesus and what we're calling the XA Learning Hour. And we strongly believe that if God is real, if what we believe is true, our questions will lead us back to Him. So let's start this journey in the XA Learning Hour, questioning the Old Testament. the Old Testament. This week we're talking about the distinction between how Jewish people have looked at the Old Testament and still look at the Old Testament and how Christians often look at the Old Testament. I'm going to be talking a lot about Judaism and Jewish views and this is probably self-explanatory but I'm not Jewish and so in talking about Jewish views on the Old Testament I tried to use Jewish sources in talking about Judaism. But again, not an expert. I have two weeks of research. (laughs) So keeping that in mind, take this with a grain of salt. I'm going to share my sources with you guys. So if you want to look into more Jewish views on a variety of different things, both including stuff like the Old Testament, as well as modern Jewish practices, customs. You see it's Passover week right now. So even looking into stuff like that. And Judaism is a a living religion, so it's not fossilized in any way. There's still a lot of different movements and change going on in it. So keeping that in mind, it's incredibly diverse. It has a lot of history and culture, and I can't cover all the different views of things. So we're going to kind of be honing in on some more select views. I also want to talk about terminology and names for things, as I keep saying, the Old Testament But within Judaism, what we call the Old Testament is simply known in English as the Bible. I once had a Jewish professor kind of laughingly refer to it as, because we often will say the Bible, and maybe if we're trying to be sensitive, we'll say the Hebrew Bible to refer to the Old Testament. But she referred to the Bible and then the Christian Bible to refer to their their scriptures plus the New Testament, which seemed kind of fair turnabout. But the Hebrew name for all of this is called the Tanakh. And Tanakh is an acronym for the Torah. So Jeff talked about that last week. The Nevi'im, which means prophets, and Ketuvim, which means writings. And so Torah, again, you should listen to what Jeff talked about last week if you want to learn more in depth and details about, well, a Christian view on the Torah. Because <laughs> again, we've been talking a lot about the Christian views on this. So to learn more about Christian views, listen to previous podcasts. But it's... Torah means teaching, instruction, or law. And it's not law straight up in the like direct legal sense that we think of it, as Jeff pointed out. There's a lot of narrative, there's a lot of stories, as well as direct commands. And that it wasn't meant, I think you said it's not meant to be a legal document, but more like a constitution. So looking at it that way. And this is sort of like the centerpiece of it. These are like the oldest five books, um, kind of what really defines Israel as a nation and a people. The Nevi'im, the prophets, are prophetic and historical books, so they include books like Isaiah, Kings, the 12 minor prophets. So that's kind of all grouped under prophecy. And then Ketuvim, which is writings, and includes a huge variety of works. This is like everything from Song of Songs to Proverbs to Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles are also included there. This is kind of like the later works that are all kind of collected together. Um, Also, forgive my Hebrew. Don't take my pronunciation for it because I don't speak ancient or modern Hebrew with anyone. 
And the Tanakh is organized differently from our Bible. So when I'm looking through this, it takes a lot of work because, um, again, it's divided up into these three different sections. And a lot of the books, so in our Protestant New Testament, or in Protestant Old Testament, sorry, we have 39 books. In the Jewish Bible, they have 24 books. It's the same content as the Protestant Bible, but it's just many books that are divided into two, like First and Second Kings are read as one book. Ezra and Nehemiah is read as one book. And the 12 minor prophets, which we each have like a bunch of tiny little books, are all one book. And with that, Jewish people have been reading and studying and teaching this for thousands of years. They've been studying the Tanakh for thousands of years. And we can even see this if we look to Psalm 119. We're writing a really long and thorough poem about how much the poet, the poet loves God's law. Like he meditates on it. It's life-giving. It's wonderful. He loves to think about it and corrects. It teaches. It instructs. It brings strength. He just, he really, and Psalm 119 really captures this Jewish love of scripture, of God's teachings, of his law. And so the Tanakh is the central book of Judaism. Most Jews regard the Tanakh as divine in origin. This includes modern Jews today also. And this is very similar to how we regard the scriptures as God-breathed, as inspired. There's even some views which refers to the Torah as existing before creation. It's kind of similar to how we use logos as Jesus, the word before all creation, which John refers to him in, in the book of John, the gospel of John, actually. So way back, because I want to kind of get into the history of Judaism and Christianity, and because obviously Christianity came out of Judaism, or hopefully obviously, because <laughs> Jesus was Jewish, and most of his followers were Jewish, and he went initially to the Jewish people, and so I think it's really relevant to talk about the origins of that and how we read it both today and how modern Jewish people read the Bible. Um, so they both came from what's called Second Temple Judaism. Have you guys heard much about the Second Temple period? Know what that refers to at all? I'm assuming it has to do with the Second Temple. Dude, that's crazy. <laughs> You're right. Wow. <clears throat> so the Second Temple is a period between... Um, so the Israelites went into exile. And so they were kicked out of Israel. And eventually they came back. And the temple was also destroyed their first temple that Solomon built a really long time ago. And that was totally destroyed. So they left, they were kicked out, and then they returned. So the second temple period is they rebuilt the temple, began having sacrifice and worshiping God there again. And this period continued until 70 AD, which is after Jesus' death, when the Romans came in and destroyed the temple. And the Judaism in this time was really diverse, but it was centered on the temple. Yeah, so this was the Judaism, and then this Judaism was diverse. So if you're reading in the New Testament, um, hopefully you guys have heard about Pharisees, Sadducees, Zealots. And there's even more sects than just that. So there's a lot of different Jewish groups, and they all had different emphases and things that they were passionate about. Um, so it was just really diverse. You had also Christ followers and people who were following John the Baptist and lots of dif different figures around. So there's just a lot of diversity in the belief 
around the time of the New Testament. And modern Judaism is a descendant, well, both Christianity and Judaism are descendant of these groups in this time. Modern Judaism is a descendant of Pharisaical Judaism, so they're a descendant of the Pharisees. And the distinctive of the Pharisees, because reading the New Testament, this isn't apparent, but what was important to the Pharisees was the idea of this existence of an oral Torah. So we have the written Torah, this stuff, the first five books, but there's this idea that there was an oral Torah that God also revealed on Mount Sinai to Moses. And that was their main distinctive. They also believed in the resurrection of the dead, which the Sadducees did not believe in. And the Sadducees were centered on the temple. But the oral Torah, which they believe existed, consisted of like stories and explanations and how to apply the laws to their everyday life, expansions of the laws. It probably began, well, some of it was oral traditions passed down from rabbi to disciple over time. And so these traditions kind of continued, but they weren't like originally, like from what I can understand, the oral Torah was likely not handed down to Moses at Mount Sinai, but was a creation of people over generations, collecting all this knowledge together and telling each other and instructing each other on how to live out the laws in everyday life. The reason why rabbinic Judaism, which is the descendants of Pharisaical Judaism, believed in an oral Torah, was there's this verse in Exodus 24, verse 12. The Hebrew says, if we read it, it says, I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandments. And that seems kind of obvious to us. We're like, oh, yeah, he gave them the tablets of stone which had the law and commandments on them. But they read it because in the Hebrew, there's no with. It's just, I will give you the tablets of stone and the law and the commandments. So his view does, the tablets of stone were the written Torah, and then and the law and the commandments was the oral Torah. So that was their understanding of the Bible and their exegesis of what happened there. And like I said earlier, most modern forms of Judaism are descendants of rabbinic Judaism, the Pharisees back then. And they were able to survive Roman destruction of the temple and Roman total desolation of their land because they weren't centered on the temple on ritual sacrifice. And they were centered on studying the Torah, on the oral Torah, on learning these commands. That was what gave you eternal life, was through studying the Torah. What brought you back to intimacy with God was learning his commands. So they weren't dependent on the temple in order to live. Which doesn't underestimate the importance of the temple to them. It's still an incredibly significant piece. But the temple was not what made it possible for them to continue in their religion. But to really understand this, the oral Torah, the oral Torah today exists in a written form called the Talmud. The Talmud consists of two different parts. And the Talmud means study. It's a huge work, and it's meant to be studied and not read. Like, you can look it up online and see the text. I tried to read some of it. You can't read it. (laughs) I mean, one, it's not in English. But even when it's translated into English, you still really have a hard time reading it. So there's a reason people have to dedicate themselves and really learn a lot about what's going on here. It's just a huge work. And so when I say Talmud, I'm referring to the Babylonian Talmud, which is always when people say Talmud what they're referring to. And this was written by Jews in the area of Persia or modern-day Iran. There's also a Jerusalem Talmud, but no one talks about that. 
was composed and written over several hundred years by a bunch of different rabbis, and this is commentary on the law. Again, they, like, really studied and thought about it. They lived out Psalm 119, where they just, like, sat around thinking and debating and looking at each other and being like, what does this mean? He had to ask questions and think about it. And the two parts of the Talmud are the Mishnah and the Gemara. Mishnah means study by repeating. And this was compiled around 200 A.D., and it's by this guy called Judah the Prince. And it was part of what makes the foundation of Judaism today following the temple's destruction. And it discusses many different areas of law from agriculture to ritual law, essentially trying to work out how to practically live out the commands listed in the Torah. In the Torah, you have lots of different laws. There, one I particularly read about was like the eye for an eye. And they're like, well, if we actually take someone's eye for an eye, no one will have eyes anymore, and that seems really violent. So how do we work out this command? So then a bunch of rabbis were sitting around discussing, like, oh, what do we do? Because taking someone's eye sounds crazy. I don't think we should do that. So they're like, oh, what that actually means then is we should pay the price of an eye. Like the person who, I gouge out your eye, and you're like, ah, my eye. So then I have to pay you. They assign a price to an eye. They did other things with stuff like um, for stoning people. Instead of actually stoning people, you'd like touch someone with a stone. Oh. Wow. I, I did. I I did know that. A lot they of, do actually stone people. At some point. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I know a lot of like we read through the Old Testament and we're like these are awful. Um, but a lot of times, like they were not actually carried out in in a literal yeah. sense. Yeah. And the point often to show, like, how awful these things that are happening are. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely that element of then, again, not carrying things out in a literal, because it is like, oh, how do we live out these commands? Mm -hmm. Um, The 613, the law. Like, how does this work out in regular life? And so they wrote, like, this huge commentary on the law. And then even beyond that, because this was, like, hard to read and, like, difficult... Even more rabbis commented on their commentary, and that became the Gemara, which means completion. So farther expounds upon the Mishnah. Later, rabbis even commented on the Gemara. So there's just this cycle of commentary and thoughts. And it's like a conversation. Like, there's arguments, there's debates. There's really a lot going on. And the Talmud, which is the oral Torah, was used to establish halacha, the legal bits of Judaism, so Halakha does refer to um, essentially laws in the legal sense. And it comes from the verb root, which means to go, as in like the way you should go, the right way to walk in God's way. And it gets into the nitty-gritty details of the mold laws of Leviticus. Well, probably it does. I didn't read it. <laughs> it also contains Haggadah, which is commentary on the non-legal portions. And this is like folklore, medical advice, ethical stuff. I wouldn't take the medical advice, probably. And these are all kinds of midrash. And midrash comes from the root of the word for enquiry, so investigation, questioning, looking into things. It's essentially <laughs> an expounding on the text. So the Talmud is Midrash, but there's a lot of Midrash beyond that. And that's even like, so Jeff and Catherine have even referenced Midrash before when they've been talking about different aspects of the Old Testament. That includes things like figuring out what was going on. I believe, I can't remember which one of you it was, when Noah was lying down 
naked and his son went in to see him. Okay, yeah, Jeff is talking about Noah after the flood when he got drunk and was laying around naked and his son went in to see him. And then afterwards, it seems like everyone treats that as a really horrible thing when his son, like, to us, just reading is like, oh, he just accidentally saw him. Like, oh no, whoops, bad, <laughs> bummer. Um, but the Midrash would expound upon that and be like, oh, he probably castrated or raped his dad. And this is like the common use. So it's essentially commentary and like looking into the details. And there's lots of different ways to conduct midrash, but it's just like looking beyond and digging into like, especially when we dig into things like where there's inconsistencies, where there's questions, where there's repeated words, looking at the literary structure of it. All these things would be the subject of midrash. This would all be done in conversation, trying to explain and expound. Um, but all that considered um, in terms of the midrash and the form of inquiry, I think that's really important and something that we can really learn from in engaging the Bible as a whole, but specifically the Old Testament. But keeping that in mind, because I've heard this question before, are the Midrash, like, authoritative? Like, are they what actually happened more? Are they, do we really know if this is, like, the truth? For example, the thing about Noah being castrated. I mean, no, some are going to be like, that seems, like, legit. Like, that seems like the most likely explanation. This is from people who have spent a long time thinking about it and debating it. They are more familiar with the context because they're from the culture. Like, even though this was published, this was published, nothing was published in those days. Even though the Talmud was created around, like, well, the Mishnah was created around 200 years after Christ. It still was, like, these were stories that were told, even, like, modern Jewish people looking at the New Testament see evidence of, like, the same idea of midrash, of expounding, of looking the same methods of looking at scripture. So these methods are legit and ancient. But in terms of, like, individual midrash about, like, trying to explain, like, I'm not, I don't, my mind's blanking, but trying to explain different inconsistencies, they can be helpful, but they are not authoritative for us. And the Talmud can be helpful because it's from people who love scripture and have spent a lot of time thinking about it, it's not authoritative for us. Um, but it is something that is worth investigating and looking at, especially if you want to dig more in to how to, how to read and how to essentially love God's law, because they really do love God's law. So I want to move on to some Christian views on the Old Testament that have happened over time. So as we mentioned, we've kind of been talking about Christian views on the Old Testament in this class in general. But these have been specific Christian views, not every Christian's view, which I'm also not going to cover every Christian's view on every topic in the Old Testament because that's impossible and crazy. <laughs> but I want to talk about a couple of specific things about how we as Christians view Jews, Judaism, and the Old Testament and some of the ways that we've read the Old Testament in the past that have actually caused or resulted in and contributed to, maybe not directly caused, um, harm, evil, sin, and genocide against Jewish people. Because we have, the way we read the Bible actually does affect how we live out our faith. And the way we read the Old Testament affects how we treat real people. Um, so I want to talk about Judaism in a loving manner. Um, but again, the most obvious difference between how we read the Tanakh and the Old Testament is that we believe Jesus of Nazareth was a prophesied Messiah in it, come to save the people of Israel, and then even beyond that, to save all of the nations, which includes all of us Gentiles, where I don't think any of us are Jewish. 
um, ethnically or religiously. But for the obvious, the Christian name of the Tanakh is the Old Testament, which implies that there is now a New Testament, a new one in place of the Old. And so I've been using the term Old Testament, which does tell you about how I view it and how we read it. We read the Old Testament through the lens of the New. And this is true of Christians throughout pretty much all of history, except when you get to the authors of the New Testament who are living this out, living it out in real time, where for them the scriptures was the Old Testament. These were, like, when they're talking about the scriptures, they probably would have been referencing the Tanakh, the Torah, specifically. They were incredibly familiar with it. For them, the Old Testament was the word of God, and the New Testament authors were Jewish and incredibly, they would have loved it, grown up on it. And they were so familiar with this to the point which I think Lucas has remarked upon in past questioning the Old Testament about how the New Testament doesn't make much sense without the Old Testament or how you need to know about the Old Testament in order to understand the New Testament. And that's because, one, Jesus does come to fulfill the law and the prophets, everything that's written about in this book. Or, and then, two, the New Testament quotes the Old Testament extensively. Like, it's constantly... It quotes it explicitly, it's constantly alluding to it, it's constantly using stories and references to it. And the only books that none of the authors quote are Judges, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. Every other book there is a direct quotation from. So the Old Testament is incredibly relevant to reading the New Testament. And they read the Old Testament in ways that I'm not going to dig super deep into, but one of the, some of the main ways that they read and was commonly read in the in these times is through allegory, typology, and illusion. Not illusion, illusion. <laughs> Alluding to things. So these were common ways of reading around even like, so the Dead Sea Scrolls, you see the same way of using scripture to talk about modern events to anticipate the Messiah. Allegory is like, oh, uh, let's say I don't have a real allegory that they used off the top of my head, but like this thing in this story in the Old Testament represents something else here now. Typology is something that was used super heavily and is probably the most relevant and explicitly used by Jesus himself, which is the idea that an event or character person in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus or re-represented. So Jesus talks about the sign of Jonah, which, again, you would need to know Jonah in order to understand what he's talking about. And when he's talking about that, he's saying that he is the new and better Jonah because Jonah was swallowed by the whale for three days and then spit up. And in that sense, his crucifixion, death for three days, and resurrection um, fulfill and do that even better than Jonah. Paul refers to Jesus as the second Adam. So Adam was obviously the first man. And he says, in Adam all died. So in through one man all died, and then in Christ all people live. But later on, as the church became separate from Judaism, as Gentiles became more dominant in the church, and as it became the dominant religion in the Roman Empire, Christians no longer took for granted that the Old Testament was relevant to their faith. So this was something we actually had to work out as a group, that this was relevant to us. There was one particular guy, Marcion, who kind of forced the church to come up with a canon which included the Old Testament, because He's definitely considered a heretic now. But he created the first Christian canon. <laughs> and what Marcion did 
was he actually hated the Jewish God. He thought he was evil. He thought the God in the Old Testament was not the same as the God in the New Testament, that he was angry and bad. And so he got rid of the Old Testament. He said, I like Luke. That's the only gospel I'll read. He says, got rid of any references to Judaism or Israel in Luke. He said, no. And then he took all of Paul's epistles, everything Paul wrote, and he said, that's the Bible. I've got it. And this forced the Christian church to look and go, okay, what is important to us? What matters? Does the Old Testament matter? Does Israel matter? How do we relate to Israel? And they did decide that the Old Testament was inspired scripture. Yeah. Um, There's something else I wanted to talk about, but this is good too. Um, And this is actually a pretty, I think, well-known verse. I can just read it out of my... You should hopefully open up your nice Christian Bibles, and I'm going to read it out of the Jewish one. <laughs> what, what did you say it was? Isaiah, Isaiah 7, 14. Assuredly, my Lord will give you a sign of his own accord. Look, the young woman is with child and about to give birth to a son. Let her name him Emmanuel. So what stood out? Was there a difference between that and you guys' translations? Urgent. <laughs> yeah. A pretty important word choice there, right? Isn't important it? Important word choice. Um, and the word used in Hebrew there is Alma, which does mean young woman, and it could mean it also means often means virgin, like that's kind of implied in it. And it was translated in the Septuagint as Parthenos, which just explicitly means virgin, um, which is obviously how we tend to translate it. I read an article talking about how even Christian Bible translators wanted to change it to young woman because that is more accurate to what's in the Hebrew as opposed to the Septuagint. But uh, that would cause a riot, unfortunately. (laughs) Um, Anyways, but what goes on here is this double fulfillment. For us, when we look at this, we can see there was probably literally a child born at that time, but also this was talking about Jesus who was to come as Emmanuel, God with us. Um, So that is a really specific example of double fulfillment. Translators make weird choices. (laughs) They're important. Yeah. Um, Okay. Well, since we're on this topic anyways, we might as well just go look at Isaiah 53 while you have your Bibles open. I think this one's fun. Especially because it's Holy Week and tomorrow's Good Friday. What do you guys think of when you think of Isaiah 53? What's it talking about? Actually, never mind. Pretend you don't know about Jesus. What's it talking about? (laughs) (laughs) You can just make a guess. <laughs> <laughs> I struggle to read it in any other lens than yeah, yeah, the one I already know. Like, like, yeah. It just confuses a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe like a people group as like a metaphor of him being a people Yeah, if you read this, reading this, I have a Jewish study Bible here, which is pretty reliable and um, in terms of like it's very academic and the sources are solid. But reading it from a Jewish standpoint... Looking at it, this prophecy or description is actually describing Israel, or probably Israel, or a righteous minority among Israel who are suffering along with a guilty majority. Here we have where it's talking about the suffering servant. So a bunch of these chapters around here are, called, are all about a suffering servant. And in a modern Jewish reading of this, and probably reasonably ancient, there's this idea that the suffering servant is Israel. Israel is suffering. Israel is being crushed. 
Um, and there's just certain things in it. Um, in verses 10 and 11, they can see that the servant is vindicated and he's either saved from a fate like death or he's actually resurrected. But even in that, viewing it as probably describing resurrection, the resurrection is seen as metaphorical. But this text is something that I think is really hard for us to read without the lens of Jesus. Because for me, still reading it even in here with this idea of resurrection, which is still evident in the Jewish commentary on it. Um, I have a hard time taking off my Jesus glasses. (laughs) But yeah, everything here is run through without Jesus glasses. Like talking about the sign of Emmanuel, that has like no special significance in Judaism. If we go into the book of Daniel, which is a title, has a title, Son of Man, that Jesus uses a lot to refer to himself, Son of Man, that doesn't have special, like it has, it used to have messianic connotations. It lost those messianic connotations over time, where now it's just translated as human being. Which is probably because Christians started saying, yes, as you see, this is pointing to Son of Man, <laughs> it's clearly pointing yeah, to the Messiah, and absolutely. Jesus this. Definitely. And so yeah. Jewish authors probably wanted to right. remove that association. Yeah, definitely. But considering all of those things, um, which is really fun. I definitely got lost in the weeds here. <laughs> There's a lot of other differences in subtle ways that we read it, whether from the fall to the creation story. Um, lots of uh, Psalm 22, which is Jesus's last words on the cross, which we view as a prophetic psalm about what Jesus is going to experience essentially tomorrow on Good Friday um, has no special significance or it's instead viewed as David lamenting Israel's future exile and specifically Haman's threat against the Jews. So it's read at Purim. So essentially everything is read in a different lens. And this goes down to the ultimate difference that We really admire the way that Jewish people wrestle, reverence, study, and seek to obey God's word. This is a beautiful thing. We have a lot to learn from it. And we have a lot of ways to grow in asking questions and inquiring of the text and spending a lot of time in debating and arguing out of love. Um, These are really wonderful things. And obviously what we get down to is the fundamental difference is that we believe that Jesus fulfills everything in the Old Testament, that he is the Messiah that he has come to save all of us, and that he's who we're waiting for, that he's who even the Jewish people are still waiting for. And that is the fundamental difference in how we read the Old Testament. Which, um, oh, I'm not, I'm sorry. Which is important, it's important to note that, like, it's not just us saying Jesus fulfilled this. Jesus himself says he fulfilled mm-hmm. this. Like, Jesus very clearly called himself son of man, son of yeah. God. Um, and I would encourage you to go back and read through um, the crucifixion story. I want to guess it's in Matthew is the one where we see it a lot. But go read the crucifixion mm-hmm. story because the gospel authors, they reference this. They reference, they mm-hmm. quote Psalm 53. They quote or Isaiah 53, <laughs> Psalm 13. They quote all these yeah. things. Um, because they knew they were trying to show Matthew in particular, mm-hmm. who was writing to a Jewish audience, was trying to show the people Jesus is the fulfillment. He is the Messiah you've been looking for. And so he quotes all of these passages. And I think it's yeah. super important to realize that. Like if you if you held if the New Testament mm-hmm. or Jesus holds any weight to you, um, these are crucial interpretations that's the cross the crux the cross of the matter yes (laughs)
essentially what Catherine said. It's really great. Um, also, Matthew in general mirrors a lot of the Old Testament deliberately. If you want to be with us live for the XA Learning Hour, come to the UWM Student Union, room W145 at 1.30.